At Qualcomm, we believe in staying connected, and you can see us wherever 5G is helping transform telemedicine, supporting remote education, and powering mobile PCs. The Invention Age is here. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash invention age. This is the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. Here's Robert Kiyosaki. Hello, 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 hello. It's Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. The show today is about this question. What's the hardest thing about business? Everybody wants to start being an entrepreneur. They want to start their own company. Yeah, and they're going to, you know, they're going to be the next Facebook or the next uh, Apple or Google. But what's the hardest thing about business? What is it, Kim? Leadership. People. <laughs> <laughs> Ask me that again. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good, yeah. But you you always say that, you know. Well, business, 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 would, be easy. Easy, business would be easy if it wasn't for people. <laughs> I know. If people just did as I told them, life would be good here. Uh-huh. But they don't do as I tell them. What's wrong with that? Isn't that true, Kim? That's true. That's true. Or they want to do their own thing, you know, yep. or they, they I know. think it's the hardest thing is building a team, building a yeah, really great yeah. team. It is the hardest thing. So today we have an extremely special, famous guest. He's a General Stanley McChrystal. He's a four-star general. He was the former commander of the U.S. International Forces in Afghanistan and the former leader of the Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC, which oversees the military's most sensitive forces. His leadership of JSOC is credited with the 2003 capture of Saddam Hussein. He retired from the military in 2010. Today, he found in 2011, he found that the McChrystal Group, in order to capture the lessons he and his colleagues learned from transla- and, and translate them into business. So he's taking military leadership into a very important subject today called leaders. You know, and if you're going to be successful in anything in life, you've got to really be a leader. Like us, Kim and I went to listen to President George W. Bush, and he says, everywhere outside my house, I'm the president. Inside my house, I'm George. You know, it's <laughs> like so I got no respect in my house. So you know, it's it's always a challenge for all of us to be great leaders, especially in business today. Uh, General McChrystal is the author of Leaders: Myth and Reality. It came out in 2018. I just started the book. It's fantastic. The other book is Team of Teams: New Rules of Engagement for a Complex World, and my share of the task: A Memoir in 2013. So welcome to the program, General McChrystal. Welcome, well, General. You. you know, I, one thank thing you. I just want to say you. is we bring on guests who practice what they preach. So to talk about leadership and talk about building a team, what better guest than a four-star General Stanley McChrystal? So welcome. You're kind. Thank you. So, so General, um, you're a West Pointer, right? And you're, 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 you come from the long gray line of fellow West Pointers. I do. What was that like? Well, you know, it was... It was probably what you expect, but my father had gone there, and my father's father had been an Army officer, but not a West Pointer, and I went there to be a a soldier, and yet West Point is sort of four years where they want you to be a cadet, and I didn't do real well at West Point because I, I didn't take it seriously enough, so my first year, I almost got thrown out for academics. The second year, I almost got thrown out for lack of discipline. About my junior year, you know, I either got smarter or got worn down. Um, But, you know, the bottom line is a lot of things that they did to me and for me didn't really manifest themselves until later in life. Certain disciplines, I joke, I still fold my underwear in my drawer. Now, people could say that's pointless, 
But there are a lot of good habits I have from people who took a long time trying to make me a bit better person than I would have otherwise been. Amen. I mean, I, I, I've already told you that I was Kings Point, 1969, and it was one of the biggest shocks of my life. I go from Hilo, Hawaii, where I was a surfer, <laughs> and, and walk into this military school, and the first thing they do is they start screaming at you. I said, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> you know? And the attrition rate was about 50%. I mean, 50% of these, some of the brightest, I was all men in those days in 65 when I went there. 50% didn't make it. They couldn't, I think most washed out within the first couple of weeks. I think we started with 1,400 and we graduated 840. Jeez. And as you said, most of the people quit. It was self-selection. They just right. decided this was not for them. It wasn't brains, you know, and they, it wasn't athletic ability. It was just something inside of them just couldn't take somebody screaming at them. <laughs> well, exactly the same uh, experience. So. Right. So, General, you, your latest book is Leaders, Myth, and Reality. What You talk a lot about the myth of leadership and the myth of what a leader really is. What is the myth? Yeah, I think the myth, we break them down into three myths. The first one is this idea of you can have a list of traits or behaviors, and if you just follow this checklist, you're going to be an effective leader. And then you look at your historical experience, our personal lives, but also People in history like Robert E. Lee, he went right down the checklist of things, but he got beaten by Sam Grant, who didn't. Um, and we see that over and over again. So at first, we learn that it's not that simple. And then the second thing is we call it an attribution myth, and that's the idea that the, the organization wins or loses, fails or succeeds based upon what the leader does. But when we actually study, the leader's part of it but it's really the context of the moment. It's the other players, sometimes we call them followers, that are almost as big or bigger than the leader. And so our tradition of biography, where we put the spotlight on a person and tell the story of their lives, heightens our tendency to think it's all about the great woman or the great man bending the arc of history. And then the last one was most surprising to us, and that's what we call it the results theory, or the results myth. And that's the idea that we are rational people, so we only follow people who are successful and good leaders. But the reality is, if you look back, we follow people who take us to places we shouldn't go. We follow people who are serial failures. We often support people who are anything but admirable or even effective. It's because leadership for the follower is less about concrete results than it is an emotional need that that leader often fills. Please, please repeat that again yeah. because, you know, you know I, I just started your book. I got through uh, Walt Disney and Coco Chanel. And um, you talk about how oftentimes a leader, the mission inspires people. Well, that's, that's exactly right. They get inspired being part of something bigger than themselves or a cause they particularly respect. And they will dedicate their and even sometimes sacrifice their lives for that. We will also discount a number of shortcomings in our leaders if the mission resonates with us or if other people are doing it. There are all these emotional factors that matter more than whether the leader is actually the person we ought to be falling behind. Right, and you, you accurately say that one of the challenges of a military officer is it the mission or the people. I mean, how many guys have sat, had their men slaughtered because they went for no. a mission? You know, and that's always been because we always say mission first, but the reality is it's always this careful balance. 
And there are some times in which the mission is absolutely required. A, a unit has to stay in contact and be wiped out, and that was the right decision. But most of the time, what you're trying to do is protect and nurture the mission for the future. And so you have to have this flexible understanding of the importance of the mission. If somebody tells you to, to go out and sweep the street and you're going to take your force out there, it's going to ruin their morale or it's going to expose them to weather and all, you know, there are times you're going to, wait a minute, let's, let's balance this. This particular mission doesn't warrant what it might do to the force. And so really mature leaders have got to always be in that balancing mode. Right. And then you said something else too, with speaking of leaders, with the McChrystal Group, you were saying that when you ask, we talk to these CEOs and you know high-powered executives, you ask them for risk assessment. So as you know, military officers, where I was trained about the risk, before we flew into a zone, we had to know what the risks were. But you said something interesting in your book, uh, Leaders, Myths, and Reality. You says you never heard any of them, the CEOs, talk about them being their risk. They don't no, self-evaluate. It's very interesting. They'll talk about the world economy. They'll talk about the market. They'll talk about competitors. But then you look at the actual failure of businesses, and quite often it's the failure of either a single leader or the, the dynamics between leaders. But they don't put the mirror back on themselves and say, you know, we're really the biggest challenge here. Correct. And they don't spend near enough time or effort thinking about that or acting on that. So how, do, how does... In your experience, because you've had all the military experience, now you're in the corporate world, how does military leadership translate or differ from corporate leadership? Yeah, the, the first thing I found was, you know, when you're in the military, everybody doesn't know much about the civilian world, so you assume the civilian world are a bunch of godless, greedy bastards, <laughs> but, but really efficient. You know, you think you're going to go into these uh, meetings and it's going to be amazing. And so in military meetings, when there are no civilians around, we used to always say, if, it's, if we were a civilian company, we'd go bankrupt. No civilian company could operate this stupidly. And then I got out and I started operating in the civilian world. I'm in boards and stuff. And invariably, somebody will slap the table and go, damn it, no military unit would be this stupid. <laughs> they? And, and they always look at me and I go, yeah, you're right. But, the reality is they're remarkably the same because, Kim, as you said at the beginning, at the end of the day, it's people. And it's how you get people to interact. So the differences between the military and civilian world are much less than you would imagine. Now, there are some perceived differences. One of the first is the idea that the military is everybody's in uniform and has a strict rank structure. And if the general says everybody go left, they go left. That is not reality at all. They, they may go left on the parade field when there's no danger and there's a sergeant talking to them. But in every other case, they do what you convince them to do. And you want them to do more than you tell them to do because you want to give them broad orders and you want to see initiative. So in reality, the requirement to motivate, the requirement to build confidence is, is the bedrock of successful military leaders. And so the command and control model never really works. So let me ask you this question. Let's say we're speaking to young men and women today, and they want to become entrepreneurs. And you know, the first thing entrepreneurs are going to run into is, you know, themselves, but also other people. How does a young person develop their leadership skills? I mean, you know, what do they do? 
Yeah, I think there are several things they do is they try to find some effective leaders, some people, and not a perfect leader to model themselves on, but two or three successful leaders, try to interact with them, mentor, watch them, because you pick up most of your leadership by seeing what works for other people, and then when you get the opportunity to try it, it's sort of trial and error. The other thing I'd say is leadership is mostly about self-discipline. You know, all three of us right now in this conversation, if we came up with a list of what a leader ought to do, it would be pretty similar lists. The difference is who has the self-discipline to know what they should be doing. You know, you want to set the good example. You want to do what's right. You want to take care of people. But it's often inconvenient or it's often unpleasant or uncomfortable to have tough conversations. So we don't do what we know we should do. I haven't run into too many leaders who, if you really sit them down and look them in the eye, can't tell you what they should have done in a situation. But that's a big difference between what they do. So how does that? How does a young person or even an old person develop that? You know, like every morning I get up and I know I should go to the gym, but I don't. You know, I mean, how does a person develop that? I mean, I I do go to the gym, but that's the first yeah. challenge of the morning. You know, I think it's different for everybody. Has to find their own sort of governing mechanism. I find that I'm a very disciplined person in some ways, but what I do is I use a calendar and I'm absolutely fanatical about putting everything on my calendar because I found if I put it on my calendar, I do it. If I don't put it on my calendar, I don't do it. And so I use the calendar as a forcing function, you know, when I get the chance. Or you get people who work with you to do that. Or you put feedback mechanisms where if you don't do something, you, you know you haven't done it. It's also good to have in an organization the ability to hold each other to account. Often when we work with clients, what we do is we try to get the the leadership of the organization together and talk about, okay, we're going to try to change this about the company. We're going to go in this direction. And we do it around a U-shaped table. We talk it out, and we tell everybody to look in everybody else's eyes and say, you've all just committed to doing this. And your personal behavior is part of this, what you do or don't do. And you need to hold each other to account. At a bare minimum, what that does is it makes them feel guilty when they don't do it and they see each other. <laughs> that's In like, a good that's, organization, they actually hold them to account. Yeah, it's like the reason I have a, a fitness trainer is because if I tell him I'm going to show up three days a week, he's going to hold me accountable to show up three days a week. <laughs> you know, Kim, that's right. If you pay money and you set it up and you know he's going to be there yep. and he'd be waiting for you if you don't show, you show. Yep, that's right. So I have a, a question, General. So the future of leadership, is the future of leadership, is it one person as kind of dictating to everybody else or is it different? No, I'm glad you asked that. I think it's very different. And it's always been more team-oriented than we might want to admit. We tend to just identify certain leaders in history and assume they did that. But even so, the reality is going further. And it's going that way because as we've increased the speed of everything, the speed of communication, the speed of physical transportation, that what it's done is put things in hyperdrive. And it means that no single leader can have a feedback loop that says, I give instructions and information comes back from the edge of the organization and how we'll do it, and then I give more instructions because it goes too quick. You can't, that doesn't work. And then there's the complexity because there are so many variables at play so fast, nobody in a central position is in a position to to make the kind of wise decision. So I'm a great believer that what's going to happen is 
leadership gets devolved across the organization through something we call shared consciousness, which is common contextual understanding of the situation and common understanding of what the organization's values and what its objectives are. You know, I, I noticed in your book, leaders, you use that word quite a bit, context. Yeah, because I mean, it's, it's everything. You know, I sometimes describe to people, you talk about a great football coach, and we say, pick Vince Lombardi. And you say, okay, Vince Lombardi was a great football coach, very successful at high school, college, and pro level. And you say, well, he was good because he was a hard ass or however you want to do it. The reality was the way he coached in high school and college, he coached at West Point, and then for the Packers was very different. I mean, when he had Paul Hornin playing with him on the Packers, you can't drink Paul, treat Paul Hornin like you treat a West Point cadet. And so he understood the context of pro football compared to college. And that's true of all leaders. You have to understand the, the situation you're in, the environment you're in, the people you are leading, their particular mood of the moment. And so the best leaders have this extraordinary ability to sense context and adjust leadership to it. So th- let me ask you a very unpleasant question. Yeah. You, you wrote, you were very open about uh, the day you got a, you got a letter, to, a message to return from the battlefield and go to Washington. What? Yeah. Uh, and you, you had to go speak to President Obama. What, what was that day? Well, that was, what had happened was we had had a series of reporters doing stories on our, I was leading and uh, commanding all the forces in Afghanistan. And uh, we'd done a bunch of reporters, and a, one particular article came out. In our time in Afghanistan, we got it about 2 in the morning, and it was titled The Runaway General, and it was from Rolling Stone. And, you know, the title of it, from the very beginning, you know, that's probably not good. <laughs> but it paints this, it painted a picture of my command group that I thought was entirely inaccurate. But, you know, with the speed at which things go, it immediately became, you know, a, a crisis in D.C. And it was on all the media saying, here's a, a command team of one of our senior commanders, you know, the guy in Afghanistan, who is not respectful of Vice President Biden and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, as soon as I saw the article, I knew we had a problem. And I made some calls back to key leaders. But then I was directed to come back to uh, the White House, basically, to explain. And so I flew back that evening, took about 17 hours. And during that period, it was surreal. And, and some of your listeners will go through an experience like this, some kind of crisis or failure, whether it's divorce or business failure or something else. And it was it was an out-of-body experience for me because in my whole life I thought I might be fired for incompetence or I might get killed in combat. I never thought I'd be accused of anything like this or disloyalty. And, and I've told people before, I actually thought during periods that it was a bad dream and I was going to wake up. But I didn't. So we got back to the United States and I'd been deployed at that time, a little over a year, and I was directed to go to the White House and I... I did that, and I went in and saw President Obama, and I had carried up, I had written up my resignation, and I went into the president and offered my resignation, and I said, he asked me what had happened behind this story, and I said, I actually don't know. We haven't had time to investigate it, but I was confident that is not the reality of my team. But nonetheless, it was not my job to put bad uh, media reports 
on the president's desk. And so whether whether we were guilty or not guilty or something in between, I'm still responsible. And so I told the president, I'm responsible, so I will gladly give you my resignation, or if you want me to go back and continue to command, I'll gladly do that, whatever you think's best for the mission. And uh, he was gracious, and he said, I'm going to accept your resignation. And uh, a few minutes later, I walked out, and my life had changed. I mean, I'd grown up in a military family. I'd gone to West Point at age 17, and now at age 55, in an instant, I'm not a soldier. And also, from you know, pretty quiet life, I'm suddenly on the ticker of every news program, <laughs> yeah. every two or three minutes, you know, with with stories that are slanted, some were very incorrect, and, you know, my 86-year-old father, retired Army officer, he's watching that down where he lives. My son off in college is watching it, and I felt as though I was putting them through this incredible pain, um, not of their making, and then I went across the city back to our military quarters where my wife Annie, we'd been married 33 years, and she had been with me through it all. Um, and I felt like I had put her through just something extraordinarily painful, because her life, she'd grown up in an army family and then been with me all that time. And I walked into our quarters and, you know, she walks into the foyer and she sees me and I'd flown all night and I see her and been gone, and I said, Annie, it's over. You know, my career. And she looked at me, and, and I remember this like it was yesterday. She goes, good. We've always been happy and we'll always be happy. Wow. And it was, it was one of those moments. It was like she suddenly put a clear lens on life. She suddenly said, it is about, you, know, you think you did the right thing. You know you did. But it's about us doing, living, going forward. And that, has, that was maybe the, the most important moment of my life from the most important person in my life. And she's she stuck to that line for the last eight and a half years. It's been perfect. How, how did you feel personally? Well, I had conflicting feelings. I felt, on the one hand, embarrassed. You know, suddenly you're on the news and people are using words like disgraced general, fired general, and all that kind of thing. I felt, I knew that I believed that the article was essentially incorrect. It, it, it created a, an incorrect picture. But I couldn't adjudicate that. There was no point in going back and saying, yeah, that's not us. It's, so I felt like I'd let down a lot of people who believed in me. You know, people who'd gone to Afghanistan to work for me, people who'd served alongside for years. And so the, the biggest feeling I had was I had been very important to a lot of people, and suddenly I had, I had left them all in an uncomfortable position. Well, and I'm sorry. Well, no, we have to go for a break, but I, you know, I thank you for your candor and being forthright yeah. about it because I think that's also a part of leadership too is what happens when you, know, you fail. And that happens to everybody in life sometime along their life, way. So anyway, you know, I thank you for your candor on that because one of the things I picked up from your book, Leaders, is that leaders are oftentimes a myth. They're not human, but he leaders are human. So when we come back, we'll be talking again to General Stanley McChrystal, and we'll be finding out more why, what it's going to take for you and me and everybody else to become better leaders. You're listening to The Rich Dad Radio Show with Robert Kiyosaki. 
Don't be like Charlie. Charlie is that do-it-yourselfer who does himself in. Do-it-yourself is good for tile and grout. It is not good for asset protection. Charlie thought he'd save a few dollars forming his LLC online. With no guidance, he did it wrong. When he sold the property, he lost thousands and thousands of dollars. He did himself in by trying to do it himself. Don't burn yourself. Use Corporate Direct to set up and maintain your LLCs and corporations. Corporate Direct is owned and operated by attorney and rich dad advisor, Garrett Sutton. Garrett wrote the bestsellers Loopholes of Real Estate and Start Your Own Corporation. He is Robert Kiyosaki's attorney for asset protection. He and his team will do it right. Visit them at CorporateDirect.com or call 800-600-1760. Mention Rich Dad and receive $100 off your formation fee. That's CorporateDirect.com. CorporateDirect.com. What is your number one expense in life? Your number one expense. It's taxes. And I've asked the question is, how come there's no financial education in school, but why isn't there education on taxes either? You know, they tell you to save money, which is stupid. They tell you to invest in the stock market, which is stupid. But what they teach you about taxes? So here we have Rich Dad Advisor, Tom Wheelwright. We're talking about his revision for his book, Tax-Free Wealth. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Robert. So what's the tax-free wealth about? What What's different this time? It's a rev revised edition. Well, so what we did was, is we ha this is the first major tax reform we've had in 30 years, 2017. Right. It was 86 was the last one. 86 was the last one right. back when I was in Washington, D.C. So many guys got wiped out because of that tax change. <laughs> they did. They yeah. did. It wiped out an entire industry, savings and loans. This new tax law is just as big, but in a very different way. It affects different industries. You know, the tax law is always a series of incentives. And the question is always, which incentives and which ones apply to me? And so the, the key to revising tax-free wealth was, what is it, what changed so much in this new tax law that we can absolutely take advantage of, I mean, seriously, the amazing incentives. For example, I mean, the bonus depreciation, for example, for real estate is unbelievable. You buy a, a, a million dollar apartment, get a $300,000 reduction or more the very first year. So if you want to make more money and pay less taxes like Donald Trump and myself, get Tom's book, Tax-Free Wealth. It pays to listen. Now back to Robert Kiyosaki and the Rich Dad Radio Show. Welcome back, Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. You can listen to the Rich Dad Radio program anytime, anywhere on iTunes or Android. And all of our programs are archived at richdadradio.com. We archive them so you can listen to this program again because we're an education company. We have nothing to sell or promote. And if you listen to this program again, you'll learn twice as much. But most importantly, if you have friends, family, or business associates, listen to this program again with General McChrystal, and you'll and discuss it, and you'll learn even more. So once again, our, our guest today is General Stanley McChrystal, and we're going to get into his book. Is, I, I'm just started. It's called Leaders. And the beautiful thing about this book, if you're going to be an entrepreneur or a better human being or a better leader, very important book because what General McChrystal has done is that he's just a position, different types of leaders. Like he starts with Robert E. Lee, but he also the, the next two are business leaders. One was Walt Disney, just a position against Coco Chanel. But what it, what he's done with the book leaders, he's given the insights, the cores of what made them great leaders, but also bad leaders. And I think if you're gonna be in business today, it's a very important business, I mean, book to read. 
So General Stanley McChrystal is a four-star general, so we like to bring on people that practice what they preach, and he knows a little bit about leadership. He knows a little bit about team. He was the former commander of U.S. and international forces in Afghanistan and former leader of Joint Special Operations Command, which oversees the military's most sensitive forces. So General McChrystal, how did you come up with the leaders that you chose for your book? It's interesting, Kim. We, we wanted to be diverse in nationality, in gender, in field in which they operate, uh, in all these things. So we, we had well over 100 people, and we knew we wanted to do six genre or pairs. We had geniuses, we had power brokers, we had uh, founders. And so we, we started that, and then we did this process where we would do a little bit of research on sort of nominees, as we went through this, and, and basically the person that we chose had to be interesting. There had to be a story worth reading. We also had a test that we called the Annie test. My wife's name is Annie because she told us as we started, she says, I don't want to read a book about any leaders I haven't heard about. So they had to have name recognition at least to that level. And then we had the rule that they had to be dead. We really wrestled with that one, but we came to the conclusion if we tried to write about living leaders, we might pull punches or we might, we have access to talk to them, obviously, but it might affect our ability to, to really be honest in how we assess them. And so we decided to go with all people who passed away. So, so General, why? why? You know, you're writing this book on leaders. Obviously, it's your study, but why do you think it's important to write a book on leaders, especially today? Yeah, I think we're going through a leadership crisis in America. I think we have started to confuse celebrity or wealth or power or any number of other things with leadership. And we're very careful in the book to say that we don't think existing definitions of leadership are really very effective. Most people think leadership is the ability to influence or inspire people. We actually think leadership is something that comes with the interaction between individuals and followers and the moment. But we, we think that people have made leadership two-dimensional. And so we look to who's got, think of a political campaign and you've got a candidate who does glib answers during a debate. That's got nothing to do with their ability to govern. Mm -hmm. And so I think there are a number of things that are sort of leading us astray. And so we wanted to go back to a, a very thoughtful look at what leadership really is and put a mirror up to ourselves to decide how we ought to think about it. Right. And you, don't, you really don't hold any punches when you compare Coco Chanel with Walt Disney. You know, Walt comes, comes across as this very kindly guy, but he was tough grandpa, to work like for. A grand, like grandpa. a grandpa. <laughs> he was tough yeah, to work for. He was Uncle Walt. I mean, yeah. you know, I grew up with the show. And then, of course, he was a tough – he was a – you know, an idiosyncratic leader would not have been fun to work for. No. So you compare two other people I thought was interesting. I haven't read them yet, but one was Caesar crossing the Rubicon, the river, and then you had Washington crossing the Delaware. And I thought that was interesting because what was your lesson in that one for the readers? Well, it was, we were trying to talk about how we think about leadership traditionally, and you think about crossing the Rubicon as being a decisive act and then we actually go back and look at Caesar crossing the Rubicon, and we find that it was only about ankle deep. And so it wasn't a very big thing. But also, he got on the near side of the river, and he did all this hand-wringing and, and asking people, should I, shouldn't I? And so 
It's anything but the picture of a decisive leader. And yet history has sort of cleaned it up and shined it up and he, he charges across. Similarly, there's these famous pictures of George Washington. Crossing the Delaware. Yeah, in a rowboat. <laughs> standing up. <laughs> yeah, he's standing you ever up. You stand up in a rowboat? In a rowboat. <laughs> I, I mean, that's a non-repeatable act. <laughs> and we find out that wasn't true at all. But we like to think of our leaders as bold, decisive, even, and we're willing to accept that picture even when it's patently unrealistic, and we sort of know it. That's the myth. Absolutely. absolutely. So I got one last question which really, really disturbed me, was your uh, criticism of Robert E. Lee, you know, because I'm not West Point and all that, but I was considered Lee one of the great generals. But you have a story in there where you actually took his picture off your wall and got rid of it. What? What yeah, did? I, what? Where did Lee cross you? Well, Lee was, of course, my my goal for my life. You know, I grew up near his boyhood home. I still live right near it. I went to Washington Lee High School. My brother went to Washington Lee University. I went to West Point. Lee was always the most admired soldier. And when you study him at West Point, you study his military attributes and his and whatnot. But you never talk about his decision in 1861. And so. My wife gave me this painting when we were sec- when I was second lieutenant, and I, for 40 years I put it in every set of quarters we had anywhere we lived, and I was proud of it. And I was proud of what it said to visitors in our house of who I admired. But after Charlottesville, Annie came to me and she says, I think you should take it down. And I said, no, he's just an apolitical soldier. And she says, that may be the case. But when our visitors come to our house, they won't know that. And they may think that you are subtly trying to send a message of support for white supremacy, and that's not your position. And that's, she's correct. Well, I, I went about a month having this discussion with her because I just couldn't buy that at first. And then we started studying him for the book. And, you know, I came to the conclusion the perspective she was bringing was right. I mean, I admired Robert E. Lee, and I still admire so much about Robert E. Lee. But in 1861... As an Army officer after 32 years in the U.S. Army, he made the decision to leave, his, leave the U.S. Army right on the eve of war, to betray his oath to the United States, the same oath I took at West Point, and to spend the next four years trying to split the U.S. in half. And we can't get around it. It was for the defense of slavery, the maintenance of slavery. And so... My conclusion was, here's somebody that otherwise I just absolutely revere, but in a critical moment in his life, he forgot what was most important. I mean, his forebearer, George Washington, who was his hero, had founded the U.S., and then Robert E. Lee spends the last part of his life trying to split it. So the irony so is thought, it's Washington and Lee University, you know? Absolutely. That's the irony so, of it. Yeah, and so I think what we've got to do with Lee is we don't throw him in the ash heap of history. We don't say he was evil. What we say is he was human. He wasn't a statue. He wasn't a picture. He was a human being. He did a lot of things amazingly well, and he made some mistakes. And we have to be willing to admit that. So i got to thank you for that because I, re- I look up to him also. The final question for you is you are uh, pursuing something that's even more unpopular <laughs> is a mandatory service in the U.S. You know, mandatory either serve in Peace Corps, or military, yeah. or whatever. 
one year of mandatory service. Now, that won't flush today, but what do you, why do you say that? Yeah, I think if we go back to our history, the tradition of service from volunteer fire departments to the military to raising barns together, all the things that communities had to do together to survive, many of those have fallen away. And now if you're a U.S. citizen, which most of us don't earn, we just get the accident of birth, um, we think if we pay our taxes and we vote, and many of us don't vote, uh, we've done our job as citizens. But I think we have a much bigger responsibility in participating and taking care of fellow Americans. And You know, you say, well, how do you learn that? And I think you learn it through experience. Your experience at the Merchant Marine Academy probably put things inside of you that weren't there before. Certainly your experience as a Marine did that. And I think we need experiences, maybe unpleasant, maybe hard, that just remind us that sometimes subordinating our convenience or happiness in the moment for something big, stick with us. Amen. So we, I agree 100% with you. You know, my parents were in the Peace Corps, and I joined the Marine Corps, which was the juxtaposition again. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but that's, I, you know, I, I, really, I agree I, with I, you. The, the word yeah. is service. Can you be of service exactly. to your country? Exactly. And I think we can do this. And right now, you know, people don't think mandatory is a popular idea, but if we make it truly practical and easy for young people where they can do it, it has to be paid a stipend so that people who don't have wealthy parents can do it. But it gives everybody that opportunity. Imagine if an aspiring young politician, you know, Mr. or Miss Ambition, shows up at age 32 a few years from now, but they didn't serve. And they get up and they say, I want to lead. And someone goes, well, where did you serve? And they don't have an answer. And that if people would immediately dismiss them, I Amen. think that'd be a great value. I agree. That's a, General, that's a great idea. General McChrystal, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. It's a very important book at a very important time. Keep up the good work. And I really thank you for sharing the time with the Rich Dad Radio listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you, General. And we come back, we're going to ask Robert. You're listening to The Rich Dad Radio Show with Robert Kiyosaki. Don't be like Charlie. Charlie is that do-it-yourselfer who does himself in. Do-it-yourself is good for tile and grout. It is not good for asset protection. Charlie thought he'd save a few dollars forming his LLC online. With no guidance, he did it wrong. When he sold the property, he lost thousands and thousands of dollars. He did himself in by trying to do it himself. Don't burn yourself. Use Corporate Direct to set up and maintain your LLCs and corporations. Corporate Direct is owned and operated by attorney and rich dad advisor, Garrett Sutton. Garrett wrote the bestsellers, Loopholes of Real Estate and Start Your Own Corporation. He is Robert Kiyosaki's attorney for asset protection. He and his team will do it right. Visit them at CorporateDirect.com or call 800-600-1760. Mention Rich Dad and receive $100 off your formation fee. That's CorporateDirect.com. CorporateDirect.com. Financial freedom begins with financial education. Now back to Robert Kiyosaki and the Rich Dad Radio Show. Welcome back, Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news again. Uh, about money. Today is about leadership. I want to thank General Stanley McChrystal, four-star general. Please get his book, Leaders, Myth, and Reality, because I think most of us have aspirations of being leaders, even of our home, in front of our kids, or in, in the community, in business, and in life. When you read this book, leaders are human beings. They have their strengths and their weaknesses. 
But I think this is one, this I think is the best for entrepreneurs. He says, to understand the entrepreneur, you first have to understand the psychology of a juvenile delinquent. And that's the challenge. Do you, do you understand is that you know you don't just go up there and follow orders and give orders and all that is that the true entrepreneur is really a juvenile delinquent. And that's the challenge that goes on inside many 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 entrepreneurs is if they're juvenile delinquents they probably attract other juvenile delinquents. And he, he writes about when a business starts to mature, the juvenile delinquent has got to be isolated. So there's so much to this book on leaders by McChrystal that you, you just don't go out and, well, I'm a leader today. You know, it isn't that. It is, he calls it the context, you know, how you operate within the context of the situations you're in. For example, when you're in combat, you operate differently than you're in peacetime. Everything is different. So it's not an answer. That's, that's really what's great about it. So once again, you can get the book, Leaders. His website is uh, mccrystalgroup.com. We have a crisis in leadership in this country and the world right now. So you can listen to the Rich Dad Radio program anytime, anywhere on iTunes or Android, and all of our programs are archived at richdadradio.com. Listen to this program again, and you'll learn even more. Any comments, Kim? Well, I, I thought that was really interesting what you said about juvenile delinquents, because if you look at most entrepreneurs, they were not the ones that conformed and followed the rules. So, I, so it also explains why, as you bring on more people on your team who are looking for a job and are looking to be told what to do, why there's also a clash also often between the employees and the entrepreneur. Well, the articles I read were Coco Chanel and Walt Disney. And boy, I tell you, Walt was a tyrant. You know, oh, he's such a nice man, you know, but- Coco boy. Chanel was an orphan. Well, yeah. She started as but, an orphan but she making wasn't, clothes. She was a tough woman too. Yeah, she was very tough. So a lot of people, it's not a popularity contest, mm -hmm. and that's really, and I, I don't, and I'm looking forward to finishing his book off because, you know, I, I need to become a better leader. And so that's why I read it. If I think I'm a great leader now, I'm in trouble. But I like to think about juvenile delinquents. Some of our greatest leaders, like MacArthur, guy was a brilliant, brilliant general at West Point. And he, he did feats that people still can't figure out. Like he, he figured out how to get the cannon that was sitting in front of, the, of West Point and put it on the roof. Nobody knows how <laughs> he got this cannon on top of the roof of the mess hall. You know, and so McChrystal even says he was almost thrown out all the time. And yet you look at all the goody two shoes, a lot of them don't make it. So it's not an answer, it's a process, it's a mindset. So please, if you're gonna be a leader, get the book by McChrystal, M-C-C-H-R-Y-S-T-A-L, Leaders, Myth and Reality. What's the first question for us, Robert? Our question today, Robert, comes from Don in Holloman, New Mexico. Favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Robert and Kim, what do you feel is the single most important skill to become a good leader? <laughs> There's a good question for today's show. The first thing I would do is get this book called yeah. Leaders, Myth, and Reality because there isn't an answer. You know, I, I went to the U.S. Merch Marine Academy, Kings Point, number one leadership school in the nation. It was a tough school. Our attrition rate was 50%. Most people couldn't handle it. And, and you, you look at McChrystal, you know, he was with Rangers and Special Forces. And those guys, you just, those are tough men and women now. But to lead that type of group, you've got to be a strong, strong leader. So a lot of people want to think about it and pretend they're leaders, and 
it's a process. I don't, I don't think that's an answer. I don't think there is an answer. Actually, even uh, General McChrystal will say, because I've heard him ask, I've heard people ask him the question, you know, what are the common traits? We're all looking for the common traits. What's that list? Give me the list and then I'll, I can do all that. And he's like, there is, there are no common traits. All of the leaders that they have studied and put into this book, Leaders, um, he goes, there really are not common traits. They're all very unique. And as you said, Robert, there's the, there's the, the pros and the cons to every one of them. But he also does say, that leadership can be learned. And like you said, it's a process, but yeah. you gotta put yourself in those situations so you can learn. So when I was 18 years old, I flew from little Hilo, Hawaii, a surfer kid, to Kings Point, New York. We march in, and the first thing we do, is we're put into a group of, we, we, they start yelling at us right away, of course. And the first thing they do is they put us in a group of 20 young men, all men in those days, and one of you is section leader. The section leader now has to lead these 20 young men who don't want to listen to you. So you go, section, 10, hut, and all, they don't respond. But that's how we learned. We actually had to do it every single day. We had different training and different uh, skills we had to perform every single day. So as General McChrystal says, you know, going to that school, and he went to West Point, I went to King's Point, it trains you. But it doesn't mean you're going to be a great leader. So that's one of the big, because we're all different. I like the thing about juvenile delinquent, because I got into so much trouble as a Marine, simply because I couldn't follow the mission anymore. I couldn't just kill people without being, without knowing why. And so that was my downfall as a Marine pilot. I, I just could not support the mission. And that's when I kind of checked out, got in a lot of trouble at that point. So it's not an easy process, sports fans. And that's why if you, I think McChrystal is studying it and practicing it, and I suggest the same for you. General McChrystal also says that oftentimes when you're in a crisis, he, he talks about like being in a firefight and being in a situation where all of a sudden the young lieutenant stands up and takes lead, he goes, and you just see it emerge. So it's out of the crisis or out of the ad adversity where, so, where maybe your true leadership style can come up. Right, and it wasn't the lieutenant, most of the, the lieutenant got shot from the back by his own <laughs> men. No, that was really true. More lieutenants got shot from the back than the front. But in a firefight, a lot of times, an enlisted guy stood up. And they were called battlefield commissions. Their, their leadership in that situation, in that context, he uses the word context a lot, in that context, that young man became a leader. But at the same time, in the context, if he comes back home, it's a different context. You, you know, my leadership style in the military does not work here in this company. You can't do what I, what I would do in the military. So that's why it's a study. It's you got to be aware and just realize all leaders are human beings. That's why General McChrystal's book, Leaders, Myth and Reality, his other book is called Team of Teams. He says today you can't be an individual. You must be a team running teams. And we've had other guests on who say, well, I can make a million dollars all by myself just trading the stocks. That's a different type of leadership. It's self-discipline what they're talking about, which you got to have also. So it's not an answer. And then his other book is My Share of the Task, a memoir of being a leader. So ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for listening to the Rich Dad Radio Show. You can submit your questions to askrobert at richdadradio.com. And thank you again, General McChrystal, and thank you for listening to the Rich Dad Radio Show.